All right, if you got your Bibles, open to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, and then 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Luke chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And so we are jumping into a new sermon series. I wanted to make it a short one. It's still going to be eight weeks long. I apologize about that. And so uh, what we're going to do uh, that many of you have done as an Advent study before is we're going to start in Luke chapter 1 and leading up to Christmas, we're going to go through all the verses in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, uh, getting ready. It turns out it was the perfect number of weeks uh, for us to do that leading up to Christmas. And so I took that as a sign that that's the direction we needed to go in. And so this will be good. We'll jump back in and do our study in the Old Testament of the life of Absalom starting in January. Uh, But for now, I think that this uh, journey specifically to talk about a journey of faith, uh, I think is going to be very, very uh, important for us. And so um, what's interesting about uh, uh, Luke chapter one and chapter two is it gets hit every year with Christmas. Sometimes we stop to break down how this is truth that's applicable for our entire year and not just for the Christmas season. And so maybe doing it this way, uh, that'll be a way that we can do that together. Uh, It starts with this question. Have you ever read a book before that made you emotional? Have you ever read a book before that made you emotional? Some are like, yeah, the Bible. All right, yes, definitely the Bible. I want you to think back when you were a kid. Was there ever a story that maybe you heard, but then when you actually sat down and read it for yourself, it stirred you? Like it was, a, it was something that was uh, gripping, but it just truly stirred deep emotion. And you think back to one of those first books you ever read. I can tell you for me personally, I can still remember it. It was a beautiful book called Where the Red Fern Grows. Okay, do you remember that one? How many of you read Where the Red Fern Grows? Story of a, a kid and his beloved dogs. I mean, I'm telling you, it is a beautiful story. Somebody tells you the story of where the red fern grows, you go, oh, that sounds like a pretty good book. When you read it, I'm telling you, I can still remember sitting in my bedroom when I was in the third grade reading Where the Red Fern Grows, and all of a sudden, I'm at the end, and the tears just start to flow, and I'm like, what in the world is happening, right? Again, it just stirs you. uh, It connects with you. To go through the account is different than just hearing someone tell you the story, and I want to tell you the truth. In studying scripture, it's the same way. There's one thing for me to tell you what the Bible has to say, but for you to get to read it for yourself, there's a stirring that takes place within you, and it truly is deepening of a relationship with Almighty God. Look with me, if you will, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 to start, where we get the setup for the entire book of Luke uh, that Luke is writing here. Here's what it says, Luke chapter 1, verse 1. It says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of things that have been fulfilled among us. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. And it seemed good to me also to write to you, look at this, an orderly account, underline and highlight, an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, underline most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Stop right there for just a minute. As the lead into our study of Luke chapter one and chapter two, we get Luke's introduction to the reason he's writing this thing in the first place. Luke says, and by the way, Luke by trade is a doctor, so he's one who thinks of things from a very uh, mechanical, methodical perspective. And he comes in and says, here's the deal. Well, many of us have based our lives on the teachings of Jesus. And he says, me being one of them, I did deep research. Uh, there were things I saw with my own eyes. There were things that I experienced through the ministry
ministry of the Apostle Paul, but he says to the person reading here, I've done the research and I want to be able to hand it off to you in an orderly account so that you don't just hear the stories, but you can read for yourself what has been investigated. And I love it that he writes this to the most excellent Theophilus. You know what theos means in Greek? Theos means God. And phylos is friendship love. So he writes it in name to the loving friend of God. Isn't that cool? He writes it to the loving friend of God. Now, just so you know, scholars are in agreement that Theophilus was an actual person. So the coincidence there with the name is kind of, I think, a nod uh, from Almighty God and his sovereignty that's written to all of us. But he's written it specifically to someone called Most Excellent Theophilus. Now, Most Excellent was a title that was specifically reserved for those in a legal profession. So it's very interesting. One scholar wrote this, and I thought it was so interesting, that it's very possible that both Luke and the book of Acts are written to Paul's lawyers to help defend him uh, whenever he goes to trial in Rome. Most Excellent Theophilus. It also is neat, too, because Theophilus, meaning, again, loving, a loving friend of God, it also is beautiful because the gospel itself, is written to us, but it is also written to you specifically. It is written to one individual person, this story, this beautiful story of Jesus. And so why does Luke write it? So that you might know with certainty the things that you have been taught. If you're taking notes, write this down. Our relationship with God grows when we take time to personally study the Bible. Our relationship with God grows when we take time to personally study the Bible. One of the ways we teach that here at Waterfront is through a class called The Strand. If you have not taken Strand yet, I want to highly encourage you in January uh, when the signups come up for you to be able to take it. I would say that somewhere between uh, 40 and 60% of our church have gone through that specific discipleship class. Uh, and one of the things we do week two uh, is we teach you how to read the Bible in a way that's not like reading a textbook or reading a novel, uh, but to dig through and really understand it as God's holy word. Uh, it never fails. Every semester, there's a huge portion of the strand class that will rise up and say, I heard the stories, but I was never encouraged to read the Bible for myself. Over and over again, we hear that same testimony. I want to encourage you. God becomes so real and visible around us when we study his word and we read it for ourselves. Not just a story someone is passing down to us, but to read the details that Luke and Eyewitness puts together. To read the details that John and Eyewitness, who will end up dying in captivity for the name Jesus Christ that he would use to describe his love for him. It truly is something that's life-changing. So if you're taking notes today, we're going to address a question as we jump into Luke's gospel and the story of how Jesus came to be. Are you ready? The question is, how do we experience growth in our faith? How do we experience growth in our faith? If you could sum up Luke 1 and 2 in one single word, I think it would absolutely be faith. This entire story is drenched in it. The definition of faith, by the way, is believing without seeing, that God is at work in the things that are beyond our comprehension or understanding, that God is over all, in all, through all, that he is sovereign, and that we have to have faith in his plan. And when we take time to study his plan, we become closer and closer to him. Today's a lesson that's good for just about anybody in this room. If you're the type of person who is new to this whole church thing, this is going to be a great study to go through and talk about faith and how you can develop in your relationship with God. But if you've walked with God for many, many years, Bob, when did you follow Christ for the first time? When did you get saved? Uh, too many years to remember. 
Too many years to remember. There you go. Long ago. A guess on how many decades have you followed the Lord? Sixty years. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I pray that that would be the testimony of many in this room. You know the beautiful thing about faith? Faith is a muscle that the Lord works on before we follow him all the way until we close our eyes to this world. Faith is a muscle that the Lord wants to continue to develop. And the Apostle Paul says it this way, faith gives birth to faith, which then gives birth to faith. Faith is something that we should always be developing in. So if you're here and new to your journey with the Lord, or you've been following him for 60 years, I want to encourage you today, listen to the story of Zechariah that we're going to go through today and really figure out where you fall on this spectrum of your faith journey. Where is it that God is trying to grow your faith? Are you ready? Addressing that question. How do we experience growth in our faith? Let's look at the story of Zechariah, a man that it says in Scripture was well along in years, and how the Lord was still growing him and developing him in his faith journey. Let's look. Luke chapter 1, now verses 5 through 7. It says, In the time of Herod, king of Judah, or just king of Judea, there was a priest... Uh, named Zechariah, down the line, my namesake, all right? There was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. Underline, priestly division of Abijah. That's a famous division. And his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Underline, descendant of Aaron. Again, you don't get much more famous in the priest line than that. Verse 6, both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands. Underline observing all the Lord's commands and regulations blamelessly. Under that line, that word blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. Now stop right there for just a minute. What I love about this description of Zechariah and Elizabeth is there are so many positives, but we also get their limitations in the same set of verses. It starts off by saying they both come from great priestly backgrounds. They've been trained in the right way uh, to lead and to follow the Lord. It says they observe the Lord's commands, and then it also says they observe the regulations blamelessly. That has to do with the way they live their lives for God, but also that they have a good reputation among the people that they interact with. Not only do they live their faith, but they are known for living their faith. But it says they had no children. And you're led to believe from verse 7 and the verses to follow that they've been praying for God to provide that for some time. But they're well along in years, and so it seems that those prayers that they've prayed have fallen by the wayside and the Lord will not bless them in that way. How do we experience growth in our faith? This first one's going to be a little bit weird, but it's truly one of the most important. Are you ready? Number one, we acknowledge our limitations. We acknowledge our limitations. In a city like the one that we live in, in the day and time that we live in, there is an attitude of project strength in all things, project strength in everything that we do, because when we do that, then people don't question us. You think about it this way. If you've got uh, clients that you're trying to woo so that they uh, will take on your, so that they uh, will give you their business, they'll pay you money for whatever service it is you provide. If you don't show that their money or that their business is in good hands, then guess what? They can take it elsewhere. So we try to project, we try to project strength. Same thing in government jobs. Why do you project strength like you have all the answers? Because you don't want a tidal wave of 
of emails from the constituency asking you about what you're doing on every teeny tiny issue. So what do you do? You put the wall up like you got it all together. Now here's the deal. Business-wise, I get why you do that. But in your relationship with God, one of the most important things you can do to grow in your faith is to know where you personally come up short. It's the old Latin proverb, know thyself. When we know who we are, when we know what our struggles are, when we know how specifically we come up short, it allows us to visibly see, it allows us to clearly see when the Lord shows up to act on our behalf. But you got to be honest with yourself. You got to know where it is that you come up short. In this circumstance, Zechariah and Elizabeth, all these wonderful things that they have, they're striving to live for Yahweh with all they've got. But they have had a very public prayer that they've prayed over the years. They've prayed for children and they've not yet been blessed in that way. If you're taking notes, write this down. It is a whole lot easier to give God credit for the miraculous when we fully understand the extent of our weakness. It is a whole lot easier to give God credit for the miraculous when we fully understand the extent of our weakness. Now there's a difference between knowing your weakness and blabbing it to the entire world. I'm not telling you that you need to tear down that wall of strength from your business or tear down that wall of strength from your government position, but that you would truly come to a point where you in yourself are not believing the press clippings that you're putting out. Know yourself. Know the struggles that you have. And in your relationship with God, your faith will grow when you acknowledge that without God, you cannot do it on your own. Paul writes it in a much more eloquent way. Save your spot there in Luke 1 and flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul writes in this famous set of verses. 2 Corinthians 12, and we're going to look at verses 7 through 10. Paul writes, To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations... There was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Now stop right there for just a minute. What we find in this passage is Paul, who's had these surpassingly great revelations. His relationship with God is unparalleled at this point. He's been used by God to take the gospel and plant churches all over the known world. And here he is going, Lord, I've done these great things in your name. You've led me and I've followed. I've given you my life. And he comes back and says... But I got a problem. Now, just for the record, this is so interesting. There's all this debate over what the thorn in Paul's flesh could be. And can I just tell you, Paul has been very, very open to this point about struggles that he's had. This must have been something that really bothered him. And for him not to name it, but to tell us three times he's pleaded with God, please take this away. Please get rid of this thing. This weakness is driving me crazy, and I want to be strong for you in your kingdom. Look at what happens next. He says, I'm trying to pray this away. I'm trying to get rid of this thing. It's like a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan. This bothers me so badly. Look at verse 9. It says, but Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made what? It's made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you want to experience growth in your faith? Then you've got to become acquainted with the weaknesses that you have. Weakness, by the way, doesn't necessarily mean sin. 
Weakness means areas in your life where you come up short, where you can't do it on your own, where you have to seek God for the very air you breathe first thing in the morning. When we come to an understanding of that, then the work of God around us that's constantly going on comes into focus. We see it and we grow. And the world around us also sees it and their faith has grown as well. In our weakness, God is made visible. God, his strength is shown. Example, I hope it sticks with you. Um, With Waterfront Church, being the founder that had the original vision for the church, you've got to know how big a head trip it is every week to see three services where this room is filled with people and then to look online and get to see the viewership that comes through. It doesn't fill my ego with pride. I sit here and a lot of times the staff will come in. I'll sit on this step and just through the week, I just sit and look out. And because most of you sit in the same seats each week, all right, it's like I look out and I can see you. All three different services, I can see different people sitting in your different spots. And I just say to God, I can't believe you did this. There's no way. I know better than anybody. There's no way that what the Holy Spirit put in my head that day could come into being if he hadn't done it himself. The limitations, it's weird, but in the beginning... We had a conversation with all sorts of places here, and we were trying to find a place that would allow a church to meet every Sunday. And the only place that was open was the best one that we would looked at, and that was the Courtyard Marriott Hotel over here. But they told us up front that for us to sign on the lease, they needed six months up front. And at 1100 bucks a week, it was more than $25,000 that we had to put down in order to reserve the spot. That's a lot of money for a church that doesn't exist. And I remember... In the early days, I'm trying to raise money, and the money didn't come very quickly. In the beginning, money comes a little bit faster once they see something actually exists. But when you say, hey, this is something we want to do, this is something we feel like God has called us to, we think he's going to provide, a lot of people sit on the backside and they go, all right, we'll see how it goes. And then there's a lot of people that we called second quarter givers. To give the first quarter was was really, really tough. The second quarter, when something was proven, uh, the money came in a little bit faster at that point. All that's to say... In the early days, I met with the church planting coach, and he said, here's what you need to do. List everybody that you can think of that might be interested in assisting financially with this project. So I made my list. I remember after that, he goes, okay, your second list is every person you've ever met in your entire life. And so sure enough, (laughs) sat down, made the list. I said, which one is it? He goes, you're going to call all of them. He goes, that's the plan. He goes, I just wanted to soften the blow with you a little bit in the beginning. You're going to call all of them. Can I tell you what was interesting? I'm kind of ashamed that I did this now. Autumn and I sat with the list, and we were nervous. Again, we feel called to this, but the Lord's stretching our faith. We can't see it. We had become fully cognizant of our limitations. We couldn't have afforded $25,000 out of our pocket in order to start the church. We couldn't have done that, let alone all the other things that were going to have to happen for this to take place. So we sat down, and we listed out to the side what we hoped to get from each of the families that were on the list that we were contacting, the churches that we were contacting. And can I tell you what's interesting? The ones that we listed the bigger numbers by, most of them didn't give anything at all to the project. Do you know how God funded the church in the beginning? It was someone who caught the vision who then took the vision and shared it with someone else. 
The Lord funded the church getting started mostly from people we had never even met before. And I believe with all my heart, part of that was the Holy Spirit trying to show me, I will do this, not you. The Spirit is the one building something, not us. Best example I can give to you that was we were sitting in a seminary class with one of our dear friends who was working as a part-time youth minister at the time. Taking seminary together, sitting next to him. I'll never forget, I've got the copy of the waterfront launch plan. We're about, I mean, six months out from when the launch would happen. And I'm sitting there with the launch plan, and we've paid a dollar and 30 cents each for those launch plans. And that's a lot of money when you got nothing. And so I'm sitting there with the launch plan, and my buddy next to me goes, Hey, you got the launch plans done. He goes, can I have one? And immediately in my brain, I'm like, part-time youth minister. I mean, $1.30, I probably am not going to get that back. You know what I mean? And at the same time, it's faith. The Lord had given us the vision. And so I hand it to him. I go, heck yeah, man, pray for us. I said, it's all yours. I said, uh, maybe we can end up partnering on this thing at one point. He takes it back. And then a few weeks later, we get a check in the mail for $10,000. It was the first big gift that we'd gotten. And we're sitting there. We were like, what? And I called him. I go, dude. How did you get $10,000? He said, well, he said, my grandfather was a church planter and an oil man. I said, no way. I said, are you kidding me? He said, yep. He said, we started a church planting foundation with the funding. I said, nobody knows about this. And he goes, let's keep it that way, all right? Now listen, we built the space in here. That same foundation gave us $70,000 to go towards the sanctuary. More than There's six figures that that group had given us over the years. And it came from handing a part-time student minister a booklet, casting the vision. Why? The Holy Spirit does it, not you. In a faith journey, realizing that you can't do it on your own is the first step in the process. That you, as great as you are, as brilliant a mind as you have, as great a past as God has given you, if you've made good decisions, all that stuff can be used for God's glory, but you can do nothing good apart from him. Amen? You got to understand that in order to grow in your faith. It begs the question, where are you weak? Where are you weak? I'm not talking about what you need to broadcast on Facebook or how you need to talk about your weaknesses. Don't cast your pearls before swine on that. But for you personally, are you cognizant of where you don't measure up? Where, you don't, where you're not able to do something great for the kingdom of God on your own? Is there some area where you are lesser, a thorn in your flesh, like Paul says, so that you can truly be watching for the hand of God to fill in the gap? Now let's flip over back to Luke chapter 1, and let's read verses 8 through 13. So we've got Zechariah and Elizabeth. They've publicly prayed uh, for God to provide them with children. Uh, It's not happened, and both are well along in years. Now look at verse 8. Once, underline and highlight that word once, because that word is a very important word. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before the Lord. Stop right there for just a second. When it comes to your faith journey, this little side note, when it comes to your faith journey, God doesn't typically like to repeat the way that he grew your faith once the same way over and over and over again, because faith is believing without seeing. If he did it one way this time, don't be shocked and in awe when he does it a completely different way after that. He did it this way one time. Moving on. Now let's look at verse nine. It says, 
He was chosen, Zechariah was chosen by lot, that's at random, like drawing straws, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And when the time came for the burning of the incense, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Now stop right there for just a second. This is basically like the Holy of Holies behind the curtain. And what would happen is they picked one special priest by lot so that it wasn't something that was done uh, to, uh, to his favoritism. They pick one special priest by lot to go and to light the incense behind the Holy of Holies to symbolically show that this was true communion with Almighty God. But there had been stories over the years of priests going back into the Holy of Holies, falling into sin or having unconfessed sin of some type, where they would then keel over dead right there in the Holy of Holies. In fact, one of the famous historical examples was they were afraid that the priest would die, so they tied a rope around their waist with bells, and the idea was that you could hear the bells jingling behind the Holy of Holies so that if the priest were to fall over dead and the bells stopped, then instead of them going back and having the same fate, they would just pull the rope and drag the priest out and they would bury the body after that. So again, the Holy of Holies is taken very, very seriously. And Zechariah has been drawn by lot to be the one to go and to do this thing. So everybody's waiting for him to come out of the Holy of Holies. And now look at verse 11. It says, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Look at this. Your prayer has been heard. Circle, highlight, and underline. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. This is John the Baptist right here. Now stop there for just a minute. Don't you love this? I can guarantee you, on this day in the Holy of Holies, Zechariah, the furthest thing from his mind as an older man, is that he would ask God for us that he would ask God for a child. Instead, what's given here is that the prayers that he had prayed in the days leading up to this, that the Lord heard every stinking one of them. That God was not absent, that God was not silent, but rather that he was working powerfully to put in motion a beautiful story and testimony. If you're taking notes, how do we experience growth in our faith? Number one, we have to acknowledge our limitations. And number two, we have to keep praying. We have to keep praying. Zechariah's prayers had been heard. They had prayed for decades, most likely, for God to send them a child. And right here in this moment, he finds out that he will get what he's been asking for. If you're taking notes, write this down. Pray with confidence, knowing you are heard and understood. Pray with confidence knowing that you are heard and understood. As the worshipers are waiting outside, Zechariah has a very personal experience with the Lord. And the Lord tells him, you are about to receive this incredible blessing. I want to illustrate a principle for you I've taught here before, but it's a good one to remember. I love the old timers that used to say, give it to God. You ever heard that before? Give it to God. In fact, if you ever went through a time of difficulty, like when I was younger, it never failed. Someone in their 80s or 90s would come up and say, young man, give it to God. And over the years, I didn't fully understand what that meant. Give it to God didn't mean don't worry about it. Sometimes that's what you can hear in that circumstance. But listen to me. Give it to God means do the very best you can and then trust God to do the rest. You do as 
great. You do as good as you can with the, uh, with the abilities and with the, uh, with the, uh, with the uh, resources that God has given you. And you run as far as you can knowing that there's going to be a gap in the line and you are trusting God to take care of that latter piece. Pray in confidence, realizing if God has placed this desire in my heart, that time with him is shaping me and molding me into a likeness of Jesus, and God will bring about in his time an answer to my prayer. The problem with prayer is the viewpoint we have in the beginning is not that prayer is communication with God. We believe that prayer is the Santa Claus list that we present to him so that we can get what we want. When you ask God for things and present your requests to him, and you have moments where it doesn't just fall right in your lap, prayer just as much is for us to come in line, in sync in our relationship with God and his will as it is for us telling God what it is that we need. In fact, we find out from Jesus himself, God knows what we need before we ever even ask him. So what is prayer for? That our mind might become one and in sync with the mind of God, and then we are able to see his his provision, the way that he provides for us and the plan that he has put in place. It begs the question, should you bring your request to God? Again, some of you, should you bring your request to God again? It's not that you ask for it and then you just need to wait till Christmas for it to show up. You ask God and you bring it to him. And over time, your will and his will align and you are able to receive the blessing that he has for you. You ever prayed for something so zealously and it just seemed like the Lord didn't provide that thing that you prayed for? But in the process, you're able to see his will revealed and all of a sudden you mold and shape so that you are in line with him and then able to see that he provided in so many different ways. We keep praying. Are you in a place now where you need to present your request to God again so that he can shape you and prepare you? I guarantee you for Zechariah, he and Elizabeth, the furthest thing from their mind is that the Lord would provide this child at this point, at this juncture in their faith journey. But all of a sudden when the Lord provides, I guarantee you there was, over, there was rejoicing even though we're about to read about the struggle that comes. Let's look at the next part. Flip over to Luke chapter 1 now, and let's look at verses 14 through 20. Look at what it says next. Not only are they going to have a child, but it's going to be John the Baptist. Look at what he says about his character before he's even born. Verse 14, he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or ferment to drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. The picture there is he's going to live by this old code of the Nazarite. He's truly going to be one uh, that is devout in his faith. Look at what happens in verse 16. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient uh, to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord preparing the way for Jesus. Look at verse eighteen. But then Zechariah asked the angel, "How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years." Underline Zechariah's beautiful question there. The, answer, the angel answered, uh, I'm Gabriel, okay? And I stand in the presence of God and have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. Underline this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words 
which will come true at their proper time. Now stop right there for just a minute. You have to picture this. He has begged God for a child, he and his wife. And then they're well along in years and they believe that 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 window for blessing has passed. And then all of a sudden, he's not only told that his wife is going to have a child, but that that child is going to be godly. And not only is that child going to be godly, but that child is going to be the one that that turns hearts back to repentance and prepares the way for the Messiah. I mean, this is like the blessing of blessings. He was hoping for a sliver, and instead he gets the whole cake. So here he is in this moment, and what does he do? Remember, he's in the Holy of Holies, where stories have been told about priests that sinned, And they keeled over dead in the presence of Almighty God. So what does he do? Before we're so harsh on Zechariah and the circumstance here, you got to realize he's standing there with the angel going, I want to believe this. I want this to be true. God knows better than anyone. I have prayed for this moment for decades in my life. My wife has shed tears praying for this moment. I need to know that it's going to happen. There is doubt in my heart. I can't deny it at this point. In full honesty, how can I know it's going to be true? And then Gabriel looks and says, dude, I'm Gabriel. How do you think I got back here with you? He says, I stand in the presence of almighty God. Look at me and believe this. But because of your faith journey that God knew in his sovereignty, God knew that Zechariah would respond this way. He says, not in punishment, but so that you might grow in faith. You will not be able to speak until the child is born. You take away a preacher's voice, that's a sad day for that preacher. You realize this wasn't a punishment. This was the angel saying, for your faith journey, we knew this was going to happen. And so you're not even going to be able to tell people about what happened back here. Notice the blessing for humanity that was through John the Baptist and him preparing the way for Jesus. But the blessing... For Zechariah individually was not just the birth of his son. The blessing was that the Lord loved him enough to shape and develop and strengthen his faith so that he would be a different man after this moment as well. If you're taking notes, don't miss this. You ready? How do we experience growth in our faith? Number one, we acknowledge our limitations. Number two, we keep praying. And number three, we address doubt. We address doubt. Don't miss that powerful moment from Zechariah. He acknowledges in his spirit the doubt that's present, speaks it out loud in courage to Almighty God, and then the Lord puts him on a path to remove those weeds from his faith. Doubt's a funny thing. There were some of you raised in church settings where, if you're being honest, Because you had a teacher or a pastor or a parent that didn't know the answer to a really hard question you had, you were told, don't ask questions like that. You should just believe. You ever told that? You should just believe. And here's what happens. It cultivates in us this attitude of, if I truly have faith, then I'll be the ostrich that sticks my head in the sand and pretends like that problem doesn't exist. That's not faith. Faith is eyes wide open, full understanding of your limitations and how you come up short so that you are then able to see when the Spirit shows up. The ostrich attitude does not mean that you have more faith. In many cases, I'm just going to be honest with you, it's either fear of the person in authority or it's laziness. 
The idea that you don't want to take the time to do the research to figure out what in Scripture is the answer to that question. You're adults, you're hardworking. Man, you people, I'm telling you, you're running the world from this room. Have the guts and the courage. If a question has been asked of you that plants seeds of doubt in your heart and in your faith journey, have the guts to let the Lord give you an answer and then pull that weed. Otherwise, weeds choke out any real growth that could take place, especially when it comes to matters of faith. If you're taking notes, write this down. The seeds of doubt grow best in the darkness. Bring doubt into the light. The seeds of doubt grow best in the darkness. Bring doubt into the light. We see this happen in all sorts of relationships, especially our relationship with God. But seeds of doubt, seeds of doubt, when they take root, can mess with some of the most beautiful things that God has in store for us. The biggest fight that Autumn and I ever had was right before we got married. Um, I had been cheated on in a previous relationship and uh, without dwelling too much on that, some of you have experienced that before. It's kind of levels of the way cheating works. And so this was one that was very public with several of my friend group. And um, I felt very humiliated. And so because of that, when Autumn and I got together and were really getting serious, I told her, I said, there's a dude who I really think likes you a whole bunch. And I was proven in that later. But there was a friend that she'd had for several years that really, really liked her. And I remember we sat down and it was one of those big moments early on. We were kind of getting ready to talk about marriage. And I said, you just need to know, I'd really like it if you would delete this guy's number. I said, I know, say he's just a friend. I said, I just feel like there's a deeper connection there for him. And it just makes me uncomfortable. And so here's the deal. We said, we talked, we prayed about it. And she said, I'll do it. I'll delete that number. I'll be done with it. We get down the line. Autumn's looked at wedding dresses. I mean, we are... We are just so in love. We weren't just in love. We were in love, you know. We just love spending time. She's my best friend. And then one day, we're sitting in her apartment, and all of a sudden, her cell phone rings, and what pops up but that guy's name on the cell phone. They weren't even talking at that point, but he had just decided to call, and all of a sudden, it was revealed that she hadn't deleted that number from her phone. And I remember in that moment, I thought to myself, just don't bring it up. You love this girl. You're about to marry this girl. Just don't bring it up. But the seeds of doubt that it had planted warranted a discussion. Not a blow up. Some of you are blow up people. Not a blow up, but a discussion. And I remember it pops up on her phone. Her eyes get big. She sees that I see it. And then I just very calmly, I said, I thought we talked about this. And then she goes, it's gone, it's done. She deletes it right then and there. And I said, I'm not saying that we have to just end everything, but if this is how it's going to be, and she goes, no, 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 it's done, it's finished, it's complete. Because we addressed that on the front end, can you imagine if I had waited two or three years before something else happened and then re-brought that up as part of my case against whatever the current struggle was? Some of you do that. You hide stuff away, seeds of doubt get planted, and instead you don't address it at the time, and then all of a sudden it's a full-blown weed in the past that you bring up two or three years down the line to win some argument over the laundry. You know what I mean? Whatever it is, right? And here's the deal. It's not stinking fair. 
It's not fair in your relationship with those closest to you, and it's certainly not fair in your relationship with God. As he's calling you forward to a new level, for you to go back and go, I've had questions since the third grade. And he looks at you and goes, you're 68 years old. What are you doing? What are you doing? Why is that still on your list? Do the research, do the work, dig through scripture, and allow me to pull that weeded out so that you can grow in your faith again. Amen? I'm teaching you power today if you're listening. Doubt Doubt is a wicked, wicked weed that seeks to choke out your deepest relationships, especially that relationship with God. It begs the question, are you tolerating doubt when you should be confronting it? Ask that again. Are you tolerating doubt when you should be confronting it? And then we get to our last verses and we'll call it a day. I was going to try to go shorter this one. It's just too many verses. All right, let's look at what happens next. Luke chapter 1, verse 21 through 25. It says, Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. I mean, at this point, remember, because they've heard the stories, they may think he's dead. Again, they're going, what in the world? Why has he not come out yet? Did something happen? We heard these stories. Now, verse 22. When he came out, he could no longer speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but he was unable to speak. When his time of service was complete, completed, he returned home. Look at this. And after this, his wife became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown favor and taken away my disgrace from among the people. Now stop right there for just a minute. Sometimes you read, my disgrace is her being barren. The disgrace for this woman who was a great, powerful woman of God was that she had publicly prayed and requested something of God and not received an answer to that request. What a beautiful picture for her to say, I prayed and God gave me an answer. He has blessed us in such dramatic fashion. Now listen, I love the part here where it says that Zechariah kept making signs, but he was unable to speak. He is trying in his futility to share the power of the supernatural and what's taking place. And there's a powerful picture in your faith journey here in this last point. You ready? How do we experience growth in our faith? Number one, we acknowledge our limitations. Number two, we keep praying. Number three, we address doubt. And number four, we try to explain it as best we can. We try to explain it as best we can. Zechariah falls short. He doesn't even have words that he can use. He's trying with hand signs and with writing to give a picture of what's taken place here. They know he's had an experience with God, but he falls short in his description. If you're taking notes, part of that faith journey is trying to figure out a way to describe it with your words, with your writing, so that others can understand it. If you're taking notes, last little quote today. Attempting to put our experience with God into words is a pursuit drenched in faith. Attempting to put our experience with God into words is a pursuit drenched in faith. For some of you, it's time you started sharing your God story. It's time you started trying to put to words what the Lord has done in your life to mold you and shape you into his likeness. This is hard even for preachers. One last little story and we'll call it a day. So Autumn and I got to go uh, not too long ago. 
um, we got to go and present before a grant board. And if you remember, uh, this was the grant board that's, uh, that's helped us since the beginning. Uh, but typically what they've done is that grant board has given about $25,000 to help with planting our church each year. And so uh, just an amazing way that the Lord connected us with them. But this year they asked if Autumn and I would come specifically and speak at their board retreat and tell some stories. And so I had a passage of scripture that I'd planned to tell. And then the head of the organization called and said, I really would like it if you would tell us about your pandemic experience. So what do you mean? He said, tell us the story of all the ups and downs that you guys have gone through in a city with heavy restriction uh, where the pandemic closed us down. We were the first city really to shut down uh, in the United States. He said, walk us through that whole story. And have you ever done this before? I started making a list in chronological order. And then it was like, oh my gosh, we've been through a lot. Have you ever done that before? Like you start making your list, like this is really like intense. And then all of a sudden I'm making the list and I'm like crying as I make the list where it was like all this stuff that seemed like it was years apart in your brain was like two and three days apart in a lot of different circumstances. So I'm making this list and I'm emotional and I look at Autumn and I was like, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can share this story. Like I talk for a living, right? And I don't think I can share this story. And so we prayed together and we felt like, in my inadequacy, that I was supposed to try, that the Lord was truly calling for it. And just so you know, I get up to speak before the group, and it was way worse than I ever thought it would have been. It was awful. I started crying from the first syllable that came out of my mouth because there had just been so much that we had navigated. I'm weeping through the whole thing. There's even points where, you ever talk with a group, and I felt so vulnerable because of everything we'd navigated. It was the first time I had told that story in its entirety, and I felt so vulnerable. It was all so raw. At the end of it, I closed it with, I I probably said too much. That was literally how I closed the whole study. And I go back and I felt so insecure, so vulnerable. I sit with Autumn. She wrapped her arms around me, prayed for me. And then that night we went to meet with the board, kind of a closing deal, shared a passage of scripture. And at the end of the meeting, they handed us a check for $280,000, more than 10 times what we had hoped for in walking into the meeting. We wept when we got the check because we just couldn't believe it. All that went straight to paying off the building. I remember we just sat going, you tell the story and then the rawness, like with Luke here, Luke says, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of random details. I'm going to give you an orderly account. I'm going to tell you everything I know because maybe just maybe the spirit will use it in furthering your faith journey as well. I want to encourage you. Don't wait till you have the perfect words to share your God story. Let people know and allow him to mold and shape it. And you never know when one of those raw details is going to end up being exactly what that person needed to hear so that it could take root in their heart. It begs the final question, when is the last time you tried to tell your God story? When's the last time you tried to tell your God story? Thanks for listening today, guys. <sighs> Faith. When we grow in our faith journey, when we grow in our faith and understanding of God, he becomes so vividly visible around us and it is worth the journey. Let's bow our heads for prayer.